Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a collaboration between the American Medical Association and the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Well, it's led to 12 physicians selected from around the country as part of a new medical justice and advocacy fellowship. And later in the program, the gelato journey of Cremolosa. The Decatur-based sweet spot was recently named the best ice cream in Georgia, we'll meet owner and pastry chef Meredith Ford. And if she brings any gelato, it's not my fault. Those conversations in just a moment. But first, this. There's a lot taking place today right here in Atlanta. First, something unusual, as you just heard on NPR. The U.S. Senate Rules Committee is in town today. The reason to hold a field hearing regarding Georgia's new voting provisions, recently authored by the General Assembly's Republican majority and signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp. Democrats are also looking to spur momentum for a federal elections overhaul. Now, those giving testimony included Georgia's U.S. Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, several Democratic state lawmakers, Georgia voters, and voting rights advocates. Now, here's an exchange between Georgia State Senator Sally Harrell and Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. One of the points of confusion I also heard was that the early voting locations were not necessarily the same as Election Day That's locations, right. and that created confusion. Does the, does the bill that was written address that real problem? No, it does not. And that is a huge issue for for voters showing up where they voted early and finding out that they can't vote there like the gentleman that I described. In fact, they made it worse because they said if you vote out a precinct on Election Day, too bad. Your vote is is uh, burned up. Wasted, Unless it's after five aside, o'clock. Shredded. Uh, that is really completely outrageous. Senator Rules Chairwoman Amy Klobuchar scheduled the field hearing after Republicans blocked a Democratic attempt to pass federal voting legislation last month. Now, the hearing is being held inside the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Meanwhile, also today, the State House Public Safety and Homeland Security Committee is holding a meeting on crime in the city of Atlanta and Georgia overall. State Representative Scott Holcomb asked GBI Director Vic Reynolds what he thought was a solution to the uptick in crime. I will tell you, I'm I'm completely convinced that we can solve the problem of of the rising crime in this state. But but, but, but it's an asterisk by that, Representative Holcomb. And I think the asterisk is not the ability or the willingness of law enforcement to solve it, but the ability for cities and counties and states to have the political will to allow that to happen. In other news, the head of Georgia's Division of Family and Children's Services, Tom Rawlings, suddenly resigned last Friday. Rawlings served as Georgia's child advocate under former Governor Nathan Deal and was head of DFACS for the past three years. In January of last year, Rawlings told me that there should be a complete overhaul of how DFACS manages the many caseloads of children in the system and that it was a top priority following the death of two kids. 
if we build a just culture, a safety culture, which is what we're working on doing, then what you do is you look at those situations not as the failures or actions of one individual caseworker or two individual caseworkers, but you look at the system. You say, how is this system responding? Not just our agency, Mm -hmm. other agencies, communities. How can we make sure that we build a system that cares for children and not necessarily base our work and our practices on one incident, but base it upon a systemic look at how we protect children and how we respond. Now, the interim DFACS replacement is Candace Bros, a longtime aide to Governor Kemp, but has no experience. And finally, a head coaching change for Atlanta United. Gabriel Hines is out. The team said yesterday that he was relieved of his duties, effective immediately. Club officials say a variety of issues led to the decision. In their last eight matches, this could be the reason why Atlanta United is 0-8, not winning at all. Assistant coach Rob Valentino takes over as interim head coach. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. It's the inaugural class for the Medical Justice and Advocacy Fellowship. It's already been announced, and it's a collaboration between the American Medical Association and the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Twelve physicians were selected from around the country, each designated with, quote, a commitment to addressing the root causes of health inequities and improving the health and well-being of their patients and the communities they serve. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Daniel Dawes, Executive Director of Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine, and Dr. Aletha Maybank, Chief Health Equity Officer and Senior Vice President of the American Medical Association. Welcome to you both. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you today. Well, let's talk about this moment that we're all in, which is, of course, still the pandemic. And I just want to get your thoughts overall, because as mentioned, we keep hearing the nation is now experiencing another increase in COVID-19 cases, obviously because of the Delta variant. And of course, we keep hearing hospitalizations, albeit a majority of the infections are folks who are not vaccinated. And Dr. Maybank, I'll start with you. What do you make of this, that we're now in this this other surge? Yes, I mean, I think this is... You know, it's been a rough and, and, and I think revealing year, I would say, and especially for us in the space of equity. Um, it, we've kind of had this um, opportunity in one way where COVID came along. And so, as you're saying, we're seeing this resurgence of cases and um, a new variant. But what has also happened in all of that is not just new cases, but the inequities that exist, um, the disparities and the differences in health that exists have really shed light during this time. You know, Daniel and myself have been doing this work for years and never really had that this great platform in a way 
to really um, point to, yes, this really exists, like believe us. And now what are we going to do about it? And so not only do, are we in this pandemic that is claiming the lives of many worldwide, but it is claiming the lives of black and brown people um, here in this country, especially um, tremendously and greatly. And that has not decreased. And so when we talk about, you know, who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated, these inequities just serve to, to get even greater. We already know that there's data and evidence that shows that life expectancy has already fallen really for the majority of Americans over the last couple of years, but especially for black and brown Americans. So it really signals for us and definitely for me that this is the place we need to be. We need more physicians. We need more um, people and leaders who are able to look at these really deep um, problems that we have in this country and the causes of them and to advocate for them and not to, to shy away from that. Daniel, I'll give you a chance to, to weigh in on that as well, making what's happening sure. right now in our nation. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Rose, you know, in, in our country, in the history of the United States, we have never been able to realize an equitable response whenever a pandemic or an epidemic has struck. And it's always the same groups of people on the downside of, of advantage and, and opportunity who are most negatively impacted. Of course, we've talked about some of those stats, racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, lower socioeconomic status individuals, and immigrants, all fearing the worst from 1793, when yellow fever struck the United States, all the way up until today during this COVID, COVID pandemic or this quadruple pandemic, as Alita and I have been calling it. And, um, and so it isn't, it, is, it isn't surprising when you talk about the inequities uh, relative to go COVID hospitalizations and deaths and now with the vaccine. Um, but uh, we, we think that uh, there's a lot of work to be done and we're excited uh, through this Medical Justice Advocacy Fellowship Program to move that needle of health equity just a little bit further if at all possible. So we're excited to see what difference we can make, not only to help black and brown communities and other communities that have been marginalized, uh, not only survive this COVID pandemic, but survive and thrive moving forward. And you both have touched on this because on this program and, and so many other programs and, and articles and white papers and research and reports, this is not new. The pandemic has obviously amplified the many long existing health disparities. But now if there is a positive and, and is it that maybe now more initiatives, but there's a difference here, more initiatives with actual outcomes will really address these health disparities. And what is there a, a formula for that, Dr. Maybank? What should it look like? Well, it's, it's a wonderful question. And so I think you're right. This is an opportunity. The door is open and we need to grab this, this open door, claim this space because some these doors shut. We know oftentimes in very political environments. And so I think it's one naming that even um, racism and all these other forms of oppression are the root causes of why these inequities exist. So we we saw that happen actually, and it wasn't just COVID, it was the public murder of George Floyd that really propelled our nation in the direction of, of naming racism and the healthcare community that really wasn't, um, it really hadn't stepped quite into doing that has really come more forward to make these, these statements. However, we have to move beyond these declarations and, and commit to what are the actions behind it? What are the policies behind it? And um, I'll leave that sp space to Daniel to talk more about of what's happening on the federal level, but what are the actions that the healthcare community can do at the institution level? And so, you know, part of it is, and, and what I've learned in doing this work is the naming that I mentioned, but we need more people who can actually, who have the analysis, 
mm-hmm. you can actually look at their institutions and interrogate them and and in a, in a positive way and help them shift and make those system changes i heard in the conversation before around creating kind of you know a just culture and a safety a culture of safety mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of work around quality and safety within a healthcare system but oftentimes they're not through an equity lens and we don't have enough people and leaders and physicians who are equipped with that lens. I know this from doing this work for, for many years now. And if, if I, I could call upon the people across the country who can really lead in terms of changing and transforming systems. And so we need more transformational leaders at the institutional level. And I think that this is, that's that formula for this time. We have the name it, um, and then we need to, to get leadership on board we need to have leadership that's trained in this. And then we need the accountability. That's the big part, that we're going to do what we say we're going to do, but there has to be accountability systems in place to ensure that that actually happens. And that's the hard part of the work. We'll get to more of that in just a moment, because Daniel, Dr. Maybank talked about the three A's, I'm going to call them, acknowledgement, actions, and then accountability. So if we're in this space now where we're talking about now is the time, and I'll ask you the same question, what does it look like? What does an actionable outcome plan look like to really reduce these health disparities or health inequities? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been looking at how the foundation of our systems fuel inequities, um, how the political determinants of health inequities continue to ravage through our marginalized and underserved communities, and how they lend racism a, a helping hand. So where do we go from there, as you, as you mentioned? At the Satchel Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine, our vision is intentional, right? To be the leading transformational force for health equity by creating systemic change at the intersection of policy and equity. And in order to do so, we aligned with the American Medical Association, with Dr. Maybank, with her Center for Health Equity. And um, one of the ways that we're achieving this is to dedicate efforts towards the education and training, as she was mentioning, of diverse multi-sectoral leaders from the community level to the policy space. And this fellowship program, the Medical Justice and Advocacy, was intentionally named to be a medical justice focus advocacy, which would enable physicians Mm -hmm. to more effectively address the inequities that are faced by our most vulnerable communities, empowering them to go beyond simply naming the inequities in our communities that they've encountered to actually addressing them, right? Rooted in the political determinants of health, this new and unique fellowship is gonna provide them with the framework and the tools that they need to advocate, really advocate for their patients. And then in so doing, help move our communities and our nation, our state and our nation, closer to realizing health equity for all populations. So, sorry, Rose. No, go ahead, go ahead, Daniel, finish. So Sure, so I I was just gonna add that um, we're intentional about using an anti-racist, equity-centered learning framework and providing the mentorship and the training platform that's going to equip these participants, our fellows, with the foundational skills and the tools and the knowledge that they haven't received in the past, right, to engage in the institutional and political health advocacy, as Dr. Maybank was uh, mentioning. Well, Daniel, let me stay with you for a moment, and Dr. Maybank, you're going to answer this too, because we're going to get to the fellows in just a moment. But everything you just said, Daniel, and someone listening says, that's great, but also understand if you want to equip them with the resources and the tools that they need, would it also mean there has to be 
from the top, from federal to state, local resources and tools that they need that perhaps would even make it even would, would equip them with what they need to do that you all are tasking them with. Because we look at the pandemic and you can ask anybody and they'll give you a different opinion in terms of how the nation responded to the pandemic. Obviously, there are two different administrations now, but that's a prime example. If there's no national or federal policy in place, doesn't it make it hard for on the local level, on the state level to do all those things you just talked about, Daniel? Oh, it, it absolutely does. And it's one of the reasons why we are focusing on the upstream, the action-based models of advocacy that address the social and the structural drivers of health inequities. So you're going to look, we're going to be looking at the structural, the cultural, the political and historical analysis of the production of these inequities. And then we're going to employ sector and resource engagement required to improve community health and well-being. So, you know, the way that we're thinking about this is we really want these these fellows to understand that health inequities are multi-dimensional problems, right? Multi-systemic problems. And to your point, Rose, we do need folks who understand the levers that can be pushed and pulled at that local level, at the state level, at the regional and even national and international levels, so that they can affect the kind of changes that will allow you know, them to move beyond merely nibbling around the edges of the problem of health inequities and enact more action, um, action uh, type of prob- action solutions, if you will, to, to get at the root causes of these inequities. Because we can no longer you know, keep our heads in the sand and, and look at you know, what's happening within the walls of the hospital. We can't even look only at the social uh, determinants of health, these social drivers. But we've got to do and fulfill the equation by going one step further to understanding the instigator that have created the structural conditions in which physicians, right, see their patients in. How is it that we see major highways cutting through, you know, um, Mechanicsville in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Or you go to uh, St. Petersburg in Florida or Miami or Baltimore, wherever. In many of these cases, you'll notice that there are disproportionate numbers of bus depots that were located in here. And it's fueling the high asthma rates that we see, right? Or the higher rates of diabetes and others, obesity and so forth, that are causing the higher rates of COVID-19 cases that we've seen and deaths. So if that's the case, they need to understand and tie these social and environmental determinants of health to their policy roots. And that's what we're going to attempt to do, to help them become more effective uh, policy advocates for their communities. Dr. Maybank, as a physician, how important is it for the, the role of primary care physicians, community physicians to understand their role in the community, even if they feel like, you know, I don't see a lot of people of color in my practice or coming into my clinic. The physician seems to be critical here. Absolutely. And so I think to the point of that's exactly the point of it is that we need more physicians to understand that they have a role in addressing um, all these determinants of health. So just social determinants, whether it's housing or transportation. Um, You know, I think about Flint and and what happened in Flint at that time, you know, and it was a physician, you know, and not that the community had not been speaking out for years, because oftentimes it is the community and those who are experiencing the injustice are saying something is wrong, but oftentimes positions of power aren't listening. But there was a physician who used her power and privilege noticed the data, noticed all these children coming out in sick, used and collected that data, which is important, and then use that as a tool of advocacy, right, to the, at the local level. And that becomes really important. And oftentimes the way that physicians have been trained 
we've been trained oftentimes that, you know, we're not supposed to engage in politics. Mm-hmm. You know, we're supposed to be in, in some level, you know, a, a political and, and we have to focus on the patient, but that's not real. You know, we understand that politics absolutely influences almost everything that we have within this country and don't have. Whether you're black or brown, disabled or not disabled, whatever, however you identify in this country, as a, even as a white person, what you have is determined by our politics. Our politics determines oftentimes the policies. The policies determine the structures and the laws and the ways that our neighborhoods are set up. It determines how our housing and transportation that we have or don't have, and that determines our health overall. We need physicians to fully get that and to fully step into that space of where they do have a role. Understanding the healthcare system is not set up right now to be fully responsive to um, you know, a doctor being able to you know, prescribe, let's say you know, somebody comes in with food insecure and they need to prescribe food. You know, mm-hmm. right. the, the system is fully set up for that, but we need more, more leadership to be conscious of that so that we can evolve our systems. And what may be crucial in the city of Atlanta may be different in in Albany, Georgia, or somewhere in Wyoming. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Aletha Maybank. She's the chief chief health equity officer and senior vice president with the American Medical Association. I'm also joined by Daniel Dawes, executive director of Satra Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine. And we're talking about a new fellowship. Uh, Let's talk about these 12 physicians. I understand you had 300 applications. Yes, a lot. What is that? What does that say? <laughs> Daniel, I'll let you go first. What does that say to you about uh, folks being a, understanding the importance of this? Yeah, I, I think it tells us a lot that there is a great desire, a great need uh, for such knowledge and skill building uh, within this uh, framework. And um, and I think, you know, what Dr. Maybank and I had thought about uh, filling in terms of a void is actually accurate. There are physician leaders who recognize um, the moment, this time that we're in, and how critical it is for them to, you know, not only look at the biology of disease, but to look at the entire ecosystem, to understand what is driving these poor health outcomes and lower life expectancies within their patient populations. And so, you know, we're pretty excited that um, we've been able to identify 12 outstanding candidates. I mean, many of them truly were outstanding. It took us a while to go through each of these applications and to um, uh, figure out uh, who should be selected. But we had a great group of folks from the American Medical Association to the American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological, and other groups who helped us serve as reviewers and interviewers for these these candidates. And I think um, overall, uh, we've selected a great group of folks that understand intersectionality, understand that, uh, again, to your point, Rose, when we talked about um, these being multi-dimensional issues of health inequities, that they've got to understand how inequities intersect with, let's say, disability status and mm-hmm. race and ethnicity and age and geographic uh, regions and so forth. So we're pretty excited that we've assembled a group uh, across the age spectrum, a group of folks who are specializing not only in family medicine, but in pediatrics and radiology, oncology and so forth. Folks that we believe will take their unique privilege and power and um, and help us think about this in a more robust manner. Is mental health also part of this? Absolutely. Core to everything that we do. That's one of the three priorities at the at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute. And as you know, Dr. Satcher, having led the nation's first uh, mental health uh, report as Surgeon General, 
um, is is uh, critical in, in, in what we are trying to do to help, you know, connect brain health to systemic health. So they will be speaking with folks who have done a phenomenal job uh, moving that uh, that agenda as well. And Dr. Maybank, you heard Daniel talk about the diversity of these fellows. I'm also curious in terms of the region and the areas that they work, because as you all have been saying this this last 15 minutes here, is that it's important to understand the communities that we're talking about here, not only black and brown communities, but also the indigenous community. Also, everyone, every sector that's involved here, you all feel like you have a group of cohorts that address all of that. Yes, and it's a, it's a very great point. And, you know, Daniel and, and I and, and our our teams were very, very conscious about that um, because for the reasons that you mentioned, one, we're learning from this experience. It's our first, you know, go at doing this, you know, in terms of this particular fellowship. But we do want to learn what are the different opportunities across from the country. And we do want to have individuals in different parts of the country who are going to be strong advocates and can share what they do um, with others. And we have folks within urban areas, we have folks more suburban, rural communities, um, small and large, south, east, west, south, like it, we we really, it wasn't easy. <laughs> but we really wanted to make sure that we had that, um, that diversity, you know, that we all know is really important um, to advance us, not just in healthcare, but, but as a nation. Um, and I think, you know, we are going to have more and more opportunities to engage people over time. You know, this is our inaugural year, you know, in our first cohort, but the idea is to build a network of individuals over time that are going to be able to one, interact with one another, but also, you know, build this community um, and this resource, hopefully for the nation um, and at several levels. So let's take our listeners through how all this will work. They are, they've been designated. You all have, you're very happy with the 12 that you've chosen. Someone listening says, okay, now what? What are they charged to exactly do? Daniel? Oh, sure. So, you know, the fellowship's going to run from September 2021 to November uh, 2022. And um, they will feature learning experiences in Atlanta, of course, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and then Washington, D.C., where they'll get to meet with uh, policymakers and um, policy influencers at that level. We'll then uh, also be uh, heading to Chicago, Illinois as well, so they can continue to build out their networks and meet with uh, thought leaders in this space. And then we're going to include a in our faculty, our fellowship faculty is going to feature a national cadre of, of experts and thought leaders in public health, medicine, health policy, health equity. And, um, and then you'll see that, of course, we're going to be uh, placing strong emphasis on enhancing their leadership skills through not only mentoring, but networking and engaging with strategic partners. So, you know, just to, to, to put it in context, um, what we think uh, is the best way to do this is in addition to monthly learning engagements, our fellows are going to prepare policy briefs, right, to highlight current health equity issues and, and provide recommendations uh, to policymakers at various levels, right, local, state, federal, to addressing the issues that uh, they have found, right, or identified in conjunction with the communities that they're working with, um, as well as developing a project centered on their personal area of focus in health mm-hmm. equity. So they will, you know, as I mentioned, get to not only uh, do that and and help develop programs, we hope that will help to uh, mitigate the impact of COVID-19 and, of course, uh, the structural uh, conditions in which folks find themselves, but we'll also engage with strategic partners and work on a bipartisan basis. But, so they'll get to work with bipartisan legislature, 
um, and representatives from professional advocacy, community-based organizations for the, for the entire year. And then, Dr. Maybank, along the way, and you heard Daniel talk about they will be charged, the fellows will be charged with, you know, policy, possibly coming up with their own policy here or writing something as it relates to that. Then is that part of one of the metrics you all use to just kind of gauge how they're doing? Not that they're going to get a grade at the end. Or will they get a grade? I don't know. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> now I've got them all scared. Um, it'll, it'll be pass-fail, Rose, pass-fail. <laughs> but how will you all sort of, how will you all gauge you know, how they're doing? And also... Maybe there's an issue where they are stumped with something or they are having challenges. You all have mechanisms in place to help them because we also understand, too, there is stress involved with the healthcare industry. We know that now, obviously, if you didn't know because of the pandemic. Yep. And so, Rose, you, I'm going to come to your second point because I think it's, it's a really important point, as you mentioned, mental health earlier um, about trauma-informed supports. But initially, you know, we're going to have to set up for ourselves because we're, we're going to have, you know, different speakers as um, and faculty, you know, we want to make sure we're doing evaluations constantly to make sure it's meaningful um, and we're adjusting as we go along and deliver this program. And that, you know, part of the, the evaluation is participation, you know, and, and how well have you participated? How well um, have you engaged with the other fellows? I think is really important because core to this is not how we're operating as individuals, right? When we're doing advocacy, what that means there's a base of community organizing, which means we're working in solidarity with others. And folks need to do that. And so then we're going to have to find ways to demonstrate that and how they're doing it. But what I think is going to be really meaningful is that they are taking um, something that is useful and meaningful to their lives at that moment. You know, it could be in their community directly. It could be in their own practice space or their institution um, that they're building a brief for. It could be something national. But the hope is to be able to apply. It's the best type of learning. Um, I think for, for many of us, and, and it's kind of the learning that you do in med school anyway, um, and, and, and physician training. So those are the ways and, and the kind of the deliverables. There will be a point where they're going to, you know, present their work to a larger audience. Um, you know, hopefully at, at one of our, not even hopefully is true, at one of our um, annual meetings for the American Medical Association, and they will get feedback. Um, and they will be able to, you know, respond for that feedback. And then we will be able to provide support on kind of, as you're saying, so they've created this policy brief, how do we help support them moving it forward um, and, and engaging with the folks that, you know, we want them to work with changing and transforming. And the other part to that is how are we providing trauma-informed support? So to me, core to equity work, right, is understanding that, you know, and, and Daniel did mention this, it didn't just happen today. Mm -hmm. This is generational, it's historical. Um, and there is trauma on so many levels because of that trauma that absolutely causes um, harm to communities, but harm to the individual and the physical body as well. And so oftentimes when we do this work of equity, there aren't systems put in place to really deal with all of that. Um, and it's, so it's beyond just like the typical mental health focus. It's like, how are we doing this more holistic approach for trauma-informed supports? and for people to build that lens up as well. And Daniel, I'll give you the last word because the big key in all of this is the word collaboration. And we keep hearing that if it's gonna take any type of transformative anything, whether, whether we're talking about health or education or policing, it always comes to collaboration and able to be transformative. How do you see this, this fellowship and also maybe spurring other collaborations between other medical entities here? Yeah, great question. So I, I think you hit it right on the head. The good news 
is that these structural barriers and, and resulting inequities are not permanent, but it is going to take greater action and collective agreement, not only from physician leaders, but, you know, widening that out, right, to these other healthcare leaders and to public health officials and community members and so forth. And, um, you know, and unless we really realize that, right, and, and do such, we'll never be able to stomp out inequities, right, unless we formulate the correct strategies and the policies to get that done. You know, let me end then with a quote from David Satcher that really has been driving Dr. Maybank and myself. And it's, it's the, his, his point about, you know, right now what we need more than ever are leaders who first care enough. You have to care about these issues. And we've done a, I think we've done a good job, Aletha, trying to find those leaders who care enough, right, for this fellowship. But then caring is not only enough, you got to know enough about these political determinants of health and drivers of inequities. And then we also need leaders who have the courage to do enough because in this health equity movement, and you know, I won't even start from 1619, but 1641, right? Mm -hmm. When the first policies were enacted by Massachusetts to legalize slavery and to forbid enslaved black people and indigenous uh, populations from being able to address their social determinants of health. You know, from that time until today, this movement is not one for the faint of heart. It's gonna take tremendous courage to get this needle of health equity moving forward. And then lastly, Dr. Satcher reminds us that you know, courage to do enough, that's also important, but we gotta persevere until the job is done. And what we want are you know, physician leaders in this cohort who really understand that that is the recipe for success in this health equity movement. So I want to thank you again, Rose, for the opportunity. Thank you both. Daniel Dawes, Executive Director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Aletha Maybank, Chief, Chief Health Equity Officer and Senior Vice President of the American Medical Association. Thank you both for coming on and taking the time. We've been talking about a new, it's a medical justice and advocacy fellowship that's been announced. Twelve physicians from around the nation will be the inaugural class of this. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for what you're all doing to help the community. Our pleasure. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice Friend PR, as always, I'm Rose Scott. Did you know July is National Ice Cream Month? You didn't? Well, now you know. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan signed a proclamation making July to be National Ice Cream Month and then the third Sunday of the month, National Ice Cream Day, which was this past Sunday. Also, it's a great time to celebrate Alfred Crawley, who, well, Crawley, a black businessman and inventor, realized the challenges of serving ice cream. So, to me, this is the greatest invention ever. In 1897, Crawley invented the ice cream scoop, and I think we can all appreciate that including our next guest, who is also celebrating a pretty cool, no pun intended, honor. Crimalosa of Decatur was recently named the best ice cream in Georgia on the Food & Wine magazine's 2021, what else? The best ice cream in every state list. And of course, that means one thing. We welcome to Closer Look owner and Atlanta native Meredith Ford, who will share her gelato journey as she joins me in studio. Welcome. Hey, Rose. I'm so happy to be here. Happy National Ice Cream Month. 
Thank you. But Same back that? to you. Every month is ice cream month for me. <laughs> Let's go back some months, though. Let's go back to last year because you opened Cremolosa last February and then the COVID-19 pandemic was declared. What was going through your mind at the time, <laughs> Meredith? <laughs> well, it's funny when people come into the shop now because of this attention from food and wine, they think that I've just opened. And so when I say, when they ask, when did you open? And I say February of 2020, they're jaws drop open when the when the light bulb goes off so but that did happen and I um I closed for about five days and completely reconstructed my brain and just said okay I got to do something here so uh we opened again for one day a week where I would make pints Mm -hmm. and the pints would be put online I would do about 10 different flavors a week and I created a market for it by selling out every week And then people would just come into the shop. The pints would be in a bag for them, ready to go. They would just come in, get it. It's already paid for, and they would leave. So you quickly had to shift. Did you have people saying, well, maybe, Meredith, just wait a little bit? Or you you said, no, I can't do that. Yeah, I did have people say that. A few people said it. um, And I did have to shift very quickly. And I, I couldn't do that. I mean, I was in a position where I have a loan to pay. I have rent to pay. I have bills to pay. Um, I will tell you, the SBA has just been absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. to me in terms of uh, loan forgiveness. So uh, you'll never hear me complain about them. Um, they were incredibly helpful here uh, in, in Atlanta last year. So, Do you think opening and then a month later pandemic that in a sense that was it obviously wasn't a good thing, but it helped you because you was look, baby steps, right? Because you can't if you have to prepare for another pandemic. I'm you there. Know, you know how to do it. <laughs> I am so there. But so many businesses had to to shutter. Some obviously didn't come back online. It's I know. What did it's you learn horrific. from this experience? I I think the thing that's really weird about all of this is that you have to learn to change very quickly. You can't be stuck in your head about how you wanted something to be. And I can very much be that way as personally and, and professionally. So you have to really be able to change and pivot very, very quickly. Um, and you just have to be willing to stick whatever it is out there and see what sticks, you know, throw it like spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. And if it doesn't stick, you got to move on and, and uh, you know, pull up your big girl britches and, and move on. You are a pastry chef, but here's a question. Why gelato? Why not muffins or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened is um, I started as a pastry chef. Uh, And I guess I'm ending as a pastry chef, but I started as um, a pastry chef and then I got into food writing and I was in food writing for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I actually was the dining critic for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution here in Atlanta for a long time. And when that uh, sort of went awry in terms of the publishing industry, I decided to get out and I went into some other things right after I left the AJC, but I... Uh, It just wasn't for me. I went into media relations, and I worked for a terrific firm here in Atlanta, but I just didn't enjoy the work. And so somebody said, why don't you get back in the kitchen? And that somebody was a gentleman here who owns some Italian restaurants. His name is Ricardo Ulio. Mm -hmm. And he was opening a restaurant in Dunwoody, and I said, okay, well, this is how much money I want to do your marketing. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you that for my marketing. Um, You're going to have to do my gelato, too. I know you're a pastry chef. So I said, okay. And that's how it all started. And he brought gelato masters over here from Italy. Um, I learned from them. Uh, It was a really, really incredible, intense learning experience. 
But then I caught the gelato bug. And mm. I not was a bad like, bug to catch. No. And I was like, look, if I can make gelato for him, I can make it for myself. <laughs> Let's educate our listeners because, you know, they won't admit it. But some folks are saying, what's the difference between gelato and ice cream, Meredith? Well, there's a lot of differences. And I will say that that's the very first thing people ask when they come into the shop. Um, and I'll usually laugh and say, how long do you have? Because <laughs> I am a total geeky nerd when it comes to gelato. But the elevator answer is air. Uh, yes, they are different in balancing. There's sugar and cream and milk in both gelato and ice cream, but they're balanced differently. But the big difference is when we put them into a machine to freeze them, that machine while it's freezing, adds air. And in the process of making ice cream, a lot more air is added than there is in the process of making gelato. Can you taste gelato and determine with your palate whether what's missing, what's there too much of, or, you know what, this is just awesome, or, oh my goodness, this is god-awful? Well, when you go to Italy... A lot of the gelato is really, really good, so you don't have to worry about it. But, yeah, I mean, you can find bad gelato in Italy. Um, the main thing that I look for in other people's gelato is the smoothness of the texture and whether or not it's being kept at the proper temperature mm -hmm. um, so that it stays uh, creamy and smooth. And when you are experimenting, what are you looking for? Is it the is it the, the flavor, like if you're going to put some fruit or something citrus in there? And you, you want to make sure you can taste that? Or is it the overall, like the creaminess? What are you looking for? Because you're the, you're the architect here. I am, and it's so fun. So people always ask when they come in the shop, do you, how often do you change your flavors? And I'm like, which day is it? Because it's like every day. I just get some wild, crazy thing in my head. And I'm like, oh, we could mix this with this. And then I'll just make that. And the woman who works for me is just like, oh, my God, really? Do we have to do this again today? So... Um, Anyway, yeah, I love to play with flavors. I and, love to mess around with flavors. And was it a phone call? Was it a text message? Was it an email from food and, and wine that said, guess what? You, you are the best ice cream in every stadium. This you made, is the funniest yeah. part, Rose. I was just in my shop churning away, making gelato. And I was checking my phone. And I checked my emails because I get orders on my phone. Mm -hmm. And I was making sure there weren't any upcoming orders and uh this guy who did a radio show in rhode island when i was still living in rhode island and i used to sub for him and do different things for him um he had submitted an email through the form submission on my website and it said hey it's your old friend have you seen this and he put the <laughs> link to food and wine and i'm like what, what is this and i i you know looked on the link and i almost passed out so yeah i had no idea do you get a trophy or do you get a check? What comes I know. <laughs> I think I just get a lot of recognition, which I have to say has really sort of yeah. put my tiny little shop on the map. And it's been an incredible honor. And it has also been very, very busy these last few yeah. weeks. So it's great. And when you think back to this time last year when you, you had been open and we're in the height of this pandemic and some states are shut and some states are not. And, and if someone had said, but guess what? 
You're going to be talking to Rose next year about being the ice cream of the, the Georgia. You I would have been like, yeah, that's fine by me. Okay, <laughs> let's let's get to the real giddy up here. Uh, LaShawn, who is a producer on Closer Look, she likes cheesecake and strawberry. Do you have something for her at the, at the, at the I shop? I do. I do a cheesecake almost every week. Okay, and Daniel, who works with us, he likes um, citrus and fruity stuff. Do you have something for him? I do. Uh, Kevin, our beloved engineer here, he's vegan. Look, oh, at, look at that face. Look at that face. Look at that face. Kevin, man. where are you? Raise your hand, baby. Can you uh-huh, help him? I got your stuff, baby. Oh, thank you. Because he was looking so dejected when I said, I'll ask. He was like, <laughs> And then when we have Micah who's with us, and, and Micah's from Baltimore. Apparently, they have some fancy, I don't know, I don't know if it's lobster. I don't know what it is. Do you have any unique gelato that. Freaky flavors. Yeah, something. That, you know what, Rose? No. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm just not into that stuff. I, I made a gorgonzola <laughs> ice cream. What? Once when I was still working for uh That does Ricard. not sound good. Oh, my I'm God. Sorry. It was not. <laughs> Summer Evans is here, too, uh, from City Lights. She says, you know what? I'm just, I'm an old-fashioned person. Just give me some chocolate. I, I have, that. yeah. Sometimes I do just what I like to call plain old chocolate. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I put devil's food cake and chocolate sauce in it. And sometimes I put, we make wicked mean awesome brownies and so sometimes I put brownies in my chocolate and I put chocolate sauce in it and we call that chocolate fudge brownie so if you're a chocolate person we got we got you chocolate I do a malted milk ball that has chocolate in it if has there ever been something that you didn't think would take off but you were surprised at the response to it yeah I actually brought you some of it today well now if you brought it I mean I did (laughs) it's almond joy so the coconut and the yes oh Meredith I don't know why Rose but I took you for a coconut person was I wrong (laughs) you're not I have no idea why I just was thinking I had a vision you know that you were a coconut chocolate person almond joys it's one of my favorite candies (laughs) as we wrap up someone listening out there saying wow you know what Meredith took a chance she kept her shop open Uh, what's your advice to someone who has a passion and maybe they're still, even we're still in this pandemic, and, and they're not sure. What, what is your advice to someone? Rose, my heart goes out to small business owners. And I got to tell you, you just have to keep your head above the mm-hmm. water. Just keep paddling. What have you learned in terms of, I don't call it maybe mistakes, but missteps, or if you had to do it over again, you thought, you know what, I've learned from that. What would that be? I would have picked a location and opened earlier than mm-hmm. I did. I wasted a lot of money getting out of leases because I thought the location wasn't really? where I wanted it to be. I love the location that I'm in now. Which is in Avondale? It's, it's, yes. I'm in Decatur. Decatur. It's mm-hmm. uh, Cortland Decatur East Apartments. It's, it's on a plaza level. So please go up the stairs, <laughs> everyone. So (laughs) lessons learned from that. Yeah, I really wasted a lot of money getting open. Mm -hmm. So it took me so long to open. Get your business plan together. Get your money together. Get your head on straight about what you really want. Be certain of it Mm -hmm. because it will change, but you don't have to have it change right then. And then stick to it. I didn't stick to my original plans the first few leases Mm -hmm. and I lost a lot of time and a lot of money over that I just got a text message from someone saying Rose you know you love coconut did you tell her that no I (laughs) I did not I I love almond joys I just have ways what's uh what's next for is there a a cremolosa 
north, south? <laughs> Gosh, I hope so. But, I mean, this year my focus is on events and my focus mm-hmm. is on building the wholesale business. Mm-hmm. So I do wholesale. I do events. I would love to be able to, uh, you know, manage my business through that. But, you know, I have to tell you something else, Rose. Opening a business isn't anywhere near as hard as growing a business. Growing a business is the hardest thing to do because mm-hmm. you're going to grow out of space. You're going to grow out of money. It's just hard to do, it, and you have to have your head on all the time about, okay, how can I wiggle this in and move this over here to make that fit? And you know, you're constantly playing Tetris with yourself. Have you had people try to come in and maybe want to invest, but then they want to say, hey, do you want to become, you know, a chain or what were you? Thinking? Nobody's nobody's done that at all. Mm-hmm. I haven't had any offers of that kind at all. So we'll see. Would you be open to that? Of course, I would be open to franchising. Um, if it's done the way it, you know, Crimalosa looks. That right was now. my next question because you know this is your passion. You, this is your, your baby, so to speak. And everyone doesn't always have the same passion that you yeah, have. Yeah, it would have to be a really good offer, and mm. I would have to be in charge because I really, 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 if you go into my shop, you'll see that it, my whole heart is in that shop. Your whole heart. Mm-hmm. That's a great way. What do you want to say about Well, that's my logo. A heart. What do you want to say to your customers and folks who have supported you through all this, Meredith? I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. There are people who come in every week, and they have been coming every week since I opened, and I cannot thank them enough. If you want to do a public radio, WABE flavor, we can work on that. Oh, I'm in. Let's do it. What a good idea. Oh, I'm already on it. <laughs> Meredith Ford, owner of Cremalosa of Decatur, named the best ice cream in Georgia. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Rose, thank you. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.